With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 388. It's titled, Will quantitative tightening lead to even greater losses for financial assets? In 1955, William McChesney Martin Jr., the Federal Reserve Chair, the longest-serving chair who served from 1951 to 1970, he gave his speech before the New York Group of the Investment Banking Association of America. In the speech, he said, In the field of monetary and credit policy, Precautionary action to prevent inflationary excessives is bound to have some onerous effects. If it did not, it would be ineffective and futile. Those who have the task of making such policy don't expect you to applaud. The Federal Reserve, as one writer put it, is in the position of the chaperone who has ordered the punch bowl removed just when the party was really warming up. Ever since then, the phrase, take away the punch bowl, has been associated with central bank actions to slow economies in which inflation is too high or at risk of getting too high. Central bank actions to take away the punch bowl include raising short-term interest rates and quantitative tightening. In this episode, we'll explore what those actions mean and what happened last time the Federal Reserve initiated quantitative tightening. This is important because financial markets are absolutely freaking out. Stock markets are down sharply this year. Bond prices have fallen. Cryptocurrency is cratering. Pundits are predicting a recession, stagflation, or other calamities. Investors and fund managers are incredibly pessimistic. The most bearish they've been since March 2020 at the start of the COVID-induced economic shutdown. In this environment, there's a temptation to panic to exit financial markets completely. Go to cash. I have felt that. Most of the tactical asset allocation models I follow went to cash earlier this year. I did not. Those models are based mostly on trend data. When financial markets sell off, the trend deteriorates. Tactical asset allocation models don't ask why. They're quant models that look at the numbers and make dramatic swings from month to month. Most of us don't have the willingness or the fortitude to make dramatic shifts with the bulk of our assets because of the potential tax consequences, having to pay capital gains tax on gains, or because we have a long-term time horizon and want to benefit from compounding of those cash flows. In other words, a deteriorating trend, what we call market internals on money for the rest of us plus, isn't sufficient justification to change our allocation dramatically for our long-term assets. We want to see some economic deterioration. We want to see valuations too high, and there isn't anywhere else to invest. Consequently, I have found understanding what is going on economically and financially, putting it into historical perspectives, can be calming. 
Otherwise, we just react to the latest news, the latest fear-mongering. In this episode, then, let's go back to the basics. What does it mean when the Federal Reserve and other central banks are taking away the punch bowl, reducing liquidity, raising interest rates? Economic growth is measured by gross domestic product, or GDP. GDP is the monetary value of all the goods and services produced in a country over a specified time period. GDP measures the value of what is produced, not the quantity. Governments typically release estimates of GDP on a quarterly basis. In 2021, global GDP increased 6% after falling by 3% in that COVID-induced economic shutdown. It's incredibly rare for global GDP to contract, to fall. Most economists are predicting global GDP will increase in 2022, despite some of the headwinds. GDP, then, is the output of goods and services, what companies are producing, and companies only make things they believe people will buy. Service companies only provide services to people who want them. And in order to buy those goods and services, people need money. Where do they get this money? We'll get to that. But when there is too much money, and households and businesses want to spend that money, and there aren't sufficient goods and services, then we get inflation. Prices rise. That's what we are experiencing today. Too much money, too much demand, leading to supply constraints, leading to insufficient goods and services relative to the demand. And companies are having to catch up, and it has led to price increases. There are three ways people get money. They earn it from jobs and investments. They can borrow it from banks or someone gives it to them. Two of those three ways can lead to more money in the economy. One doesn't. When we earn money from our jobs, money flows into our bank account, but it flows out of the bank account of our employer. It's a money transfer. There is no new money created when we earn money. When we earn interest or dividends, that money flows into our brokerage account. But those funds come from a company or the fund that paid the dividend or interest. There's no new money. It's a transfer of money. If a friend or family member gives us money, money flows into our bank account and out of the bank account of our friend or family member. No new money is created there. Here are the two ways new money is created. Bank borrowing, when households and businesses take out loans, and through quantitative easing in combination with a federal budget deficit. Now, we'll go into much more detail on that because those are just big words. Let's get to bank lending, and we've talked about this in numerous episodes. When we borrow from the bank, new money is created. The bank creates a deposit, an electronic deposit, in our bank account. We're free to spend that money. We sign a loan promising to pay the money back, but it is new money for us, and it is newly created money because banks issue private money. They can create deposits out of thin air. They just have to balance their accounting books. They offset that newly created deposit with a loan receivable on their balance sheet. The loan receivable is an asset. The newly created deposit is a liability. The amount that households and businesses are willing to borrow depends on the level of interest rates. As interest rates go up, households can't borrow as much because it gets more expensive because of the interest. The payments go up. 
The amount they're willing to borrow also depends on their ability to pay back the loan and the willingness of banks to lend. And this is the tool then that central banks use to try to influence the amount of money creation, the amount of new money that can be spent on goods and services that can lead to excess demand, constrained supply, capacity constraints that lead to inflation. When central banks raise short-term interest rates, what is known as their policy rates, in the U.S., that policy rate is called the Fed funds rate. When central banks do that, they're seeking to influence longer-term interest rates so that households and businesses will borrow less and there'll be less money created. Less money creation leads to lower demand and hopefully a better match between the output produced and the output consumed and lower inflation. And that's what the Federal Reserve is doing now. It recently raised its policy rate another half a percent. Now the Fed funds rate is at 1%. In the 1950s, when William McChesney Martin Jr. was chair of the Federal Reserve, adjusting policy rates was the way that central banks took away or filled the punch bowl. In the last 20 years or so, central banks have been using a new tool to influence the punch bowl. It's called quantitative easing. This started with Japan in 2001. In the U.S. and the U.K., quantitative easing programs started in 2009, and in the European Union, it was in 2015. Quantitative easing, or QE, consists of central banks purchasing government bonds or other securities in the secondary market. Secondary market is the market where bonds and stocks trade between households and businesses. QE doesn't see central banks purchasing directly from the government. They are purchasing these securities in the open market. QE on its own doesn't create wealth. And I've discussed this in the past. If I sell a bond to the Federal Reserve, I get cash in my bank account. But my wealth hasn't changed. I am no richer. I just have more cash that I could spend, but I have the same net worth. My assets minus my liabilities is the same. It's just that now I have more of a cash asset and less of a bond asset. But when a central bank pursues quantitative easing, at the same time, the federal government is running a budget deficit, a budget deficit being the government is spending more than it's receiving in tax revenue, then that QE program leads to money creation. In other words, the effect of QE combined with a federal budget deficit equates to the government giving people money, newly created money, money that can be used to buy goods and services or assets like houses because as part of that process, wealth is created and new money. We're going to go through some examples in detail to grasp these principles. In these examples, we're measuring two things. We're measuring the cash or liquidity. How much money is there in checking accounts? A monetary aggregate that we've discussed is M2. It, it consists of cash, dollar bills, coins, checking accounts, savings accounts at banks, and retail money market mutual funds. So very liquid assets. That's cash that can be spent to buy things. We're also going to measure wealth, the increase in net worth, the assets minus liabilities. It's possible to be wealthy, but cash poor. We could have a lot of wealth in our house, but not have any cash to spend. For an economy to expand dramatically, for individuals to buy more output, causing businesses to want to produce more output, Economies need more wealth, and they need more cash to spend, greater liquidity. I'll go through four scenarios. 
and we'll look in each scenario whether cash increased and whether wealth increased. The first scenario is the government, the federal government sends me $100, direct deposit into my checking account. At the same time, the government taxes my neighbor $100. That means the government ran a balanced budget. There was no new money or cash created, and there was no increase in wealth across the economy. I'm $100 richer, but my neighbor is $100 poorer because my neighbor was taxed $100. That's a simple scenario of a balanced budget for a government. The second scenario is the government sends me $200. The government taxes my neighbor $100, and then the government borrows $100 from a different neighbor. The government issues an IOU, a bond, to my neighbor. This is a scenario of a budget deficit. The government ran a $100 budget deficit because it spent $200 by sending it to me, but only taxed the neighbor $100. There was a $100 hole in the government budget that they plugged by borrowing the money from a different neighbor. In this scenario, no new money was created. $200 went into my checking account, but $200 left the checking accounts of my neighbors. $100 went to taxes. And $100 of that cash and checking accounts went to buy a government bond. But when the government runs a budget deficit, wealth does increase. Liquidity doesn't increase because the amount of cash in the economy doesn't change. But I'm $200 richer and my neighbor is only $100 poorer. So the overall wealth increased by $100. Wealth went up, but liquidity and cash did not because the overall cash in the economy stayed the same. Let's take a look at a third scenario, quantitative easing. Again, the government sends me $200 and taxes my neighbor $100, and the government borrows $100 from a different neighbor and issues a bond. That's just like the last scenario, where there was no new cash created, but wealth went up by $100. Suppose then the Federal Reserve then goes to that neighbor that bought the bond from the government and buys the $100 bond from the neighbor with newly created money, because that's what the Federal Reserve can do. They can create money because they are the issuer of currency. A dollar bill is a Federal Reserve note. It's a non-interest-bearing note, a non-interest-bearing liability of the Federal Reserve. What happened in that scenario? I have $200 in cash. My neighbor that was taxed $100 has $100 less in cash. And the neighbor who bought the bond and then sold it to the Federal Reserve has the same amount of cash. The neighbor took $100 of cash, bought a bond from the government for $100, and then sold that bond to the Federal Reserve and has the same cash balance. Across our little economy then, in this scenario, total cash increased by $100 and wealth in the economy increased by $100. Again, I got $200 in cash and only $100 went out of the economy in taxes, leaving a $100 increase. And then across the economy, I'm $200 richer, wealthier. My neighbor is $100 poorer because of the taxes. That's what QE is. It's a combination of increased wealth because of the federal budget deficit and an increase in cash because of quantitative easing. It's the combination of the two. Quantitative easing, federal budget deficit, equals an increase in wealth and increase of cash that can be spent. If that happens, it should show up in the numbers. 
There should be more cash in the system, more wealth. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. In fiscal years 2020 and 2021, the U.S. ran a $6 trillion federal budget deficit. That led to a $6 trillion increase in wealth across the economy. At the same time, the Federal Reserve bought $3.5 trillion of government bonds over that same period. And as a result, new cash into the economy increased by $3.5 trillion. We can see that in that M2 monetary aggregate, cash, checking, savings account, retail, money market mutual funds. In March 2020, there was $15.5 trillion of M2 cash. By September 2021, there was $21 trillion, a $5.5 trillion increase in the money supply. That money supply increase, $3.5 trillion, came from new money from the Federal Reserve, from their purchase of government bonds. A half a trillion came from new bank loans. When banks make loans, that creates money. So total loans throughout the economy increased a half a trillion dollars. And then a roughly another $1.5 trillion in cash was from mortgage-backed bonds and other securities that the Federal Reserve purchased. That $1.5 trillion didn't lead to more wealth because holders of assets, mortgage-backed bonds, sold them to the Federal Reserve. But the new cash was $3.5 trillion. Total net worth across the economy from the federal budget deficit increased $6 trillion. 
in 2020 and 2021. But because the Federal Reserve only bought $3.5 trillion in treasury bonds, the new cash into the economy from that quantitative easing was $3.5 trillion. Quantitative easing. We can see the increase in the money supply from quantitative easing. We can also see it in the personal savings rate, the percentage of money that households are able to save out of their personal income, out of what's known as disposable personal income, the income after paying taxes. From March 2020 through July 2021, the personal savings rate has been over 10% in the U.S., much higher than average. At times, it was over 20%. We're seeing more money. We're seeing greater savings, greater wealth by households and businesses. And it's also showing up in survey data. Last week, the Federal Reserve released a survey of adults. This survey was taken in October and November and was asking them about their wealth. How are they doing? 78% of adults said they were doing okay or living comfortably, up from 75% in 2020. And this is the highest share since 2013. Households are feeling better. They have more savings. They have more wealth because of quantitative easing. And because they have both cash and wealth, and this is across the economy, households spent that cash on goods and services, leading to inflation because the demand was so great. They also bought assets with them, stocks, cryptocurrency, houses. We've seen asset prices jump dramatically, and it is a result of quantitative easing combined with very large federal budget deficits because of stimulus programs. What happens then when QE is reversed in what is known as quantitative tightening? The Federal Reserve last month released a notice that said they intend to reduce the securities they hold over time, reduce it in a predictable manner. And the way that they're doing that is they have all these government bonds and mortgage-backed securities, and as they mature, they won't buy new ones. Because right now, every time a bond matures, they go out in the secondary market and they buy a replacement bond. Now, for some of those bonds, when they mature, the Federal Reserve won't buy a replacement, which means the U.S. government will need to issue a new bond. Let's go through that scenario. The government sends me $200. The government taxes my neighbor $100. The government borrows $100 from a different neighbor and issues a bond. And now, because one of the Federal Reserve's bonds have matured, the government has to pay the Federal Reserve the principal balance on that bond, and the Federal Reserve isn't buying a replacement. The government then has to go out and issue another $100 bond to replace the one that the Federal Reserve owned. What happened in that scenario? I have $200 in cash. My neighbor that was taxed $100 has $100 less in cash. And the two neighbors who bought a total of $200 in bonds have $200 less in cash. That means cash in the economy went down by $100. I got $200, $100 went to the, to the government, and my neighbors swapped their cash for government bonds. The cash went down, the, the liquidity went down, but I'm still wealthier. I'm $200 wealthier. My neighbor that had to pay taxes is $100 poorer. So overall wealth in the economy still went up $100, even though the amount of cash in the economy went down by $100. Often, pundits, when they talk about quantitative tightening, talk about it as if wealth is being destroyed. And it's not. As long as the federal government continues to run a budget deficit, wealth 
is still increasing across the economy. But the liquidity, the cash to buy things is dropping. The federal government, in their announcement, the pace of quantitative tightening over the next 12 months will not be replacing $630 billion in U.S. Treasuries. They'll let them mature, and the federal government will need to replace those bonds. The Federal Reserve will also allow about $370 billion of mortgage-backed securities expire, mature, and won't replace them. That means $1 trillion of liquidity of cash will be leaving the U.S. economy. This has been done before. The Federal Reserve initiated quantitative tightening in October 2017, and it went through September 2019. Total Federal Reserve assets fell by $800 billion, including $400 billion in treasury bonds. The amount of cash in liquidity in the economy was less, but the amount of wealth didn't drop. The U.S. ran a budget deficit of $1.8 trillion combined for fiscal 2018 and 2019. The budget deficit was still occurring, which means on average across the economy, wealth was created, wealth increased. Now, this isn't productive wealth. This is just net worths increasing because the government spent money. What happened during this quantitative tightening cycle? A lot of people are worried about what's happening now. The Fed is raising interest rates. They're going to do quantitative tightening and markets are selling off. But during that two-year period of quantitative tightening, the U.S. economy grew by 3% in 2018 as measured by GDP, and it grew by 2.2% in 2019. The economy only went into a recession in 2020 due to the pandemic. During that period of quantitative tightening, U.S. stocks returned 10.2% annualized. During the entire tightening cycle from December 2015 through September 2019, stocks returned 11.3% annualized. Just because the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, doing quantitative tightening, does not mean asset classes have to sell off because they didn't. Bitcoin in December 2015, at the beginning of the tightening cycle, was worth $460. When the Federal Reserve started quantitative tightening, QT, Bitcoin was worth $5,800. And when the U.S. Federal Reserve stopped quantitative tightening in September 2019, Bitcoin was worth $10,000. What did change during that period is stocks did get less expensive. The P.E. of stocks at the beginning of quantitative tightening was 20.6. By the end, stocks were 18.8, the P.E., That was trailing P.E. Forward P.E., based on expected earnings, went from 18.4, the beginning of quantitative tightening, down to 17.3 by September 2019. Price to cash flow fell from 14.7 down to 14. That quantitative tightening, that reduction in cash, led to less expensive stocks. But corporate profits continued to grow. And as a result, stocks had a positive return. And Cryptocurrencies increased during that time. Now they're selling off dramatically. That's what happened during the last three and a half years of policy rate increases from 2015 to 2019 and two years of quantitative tightening. There was no recession. The stock market appreciated. Cryptocurrency also appreciated, as did other assets. Now, maybe this time is different, but it isn't a lock. 
The stimulus was much greater this time. And so the built-up demand was much higher. The amount of new wealth and money created was much higher, which means the pace of quantitative tightening is much faster this time. And we've seen a large impact on speculative assets, including cryptocurrency and growth stocks. We'll probably see valuations dropped. We have seen valuations for stocks drop. But we don't know how it'll turn out because overall wealth is still increasing due to budget deficits. And when people are wealthier, they feel wealthier, they will borrow money. Senior loan officer surveys of of bankers. The Federal Reserve does an ongoing survey of banks. More banks are willing to lend than in the most recent three months versus the prior three months. And they're seeing consumers willing to borrow more and borrowing more, particularly on credit cards. Now, are they borrowing more on credit cards because they're feeling squeezed? Some. But across the economy, households have built up wealth and savings that they can spend. We're going to have to wait and see until we get more evidence. Will there be a soft landing where we have a slowing economy, reduced inflation? Maybe we get a mild recession. Or, worst case scenario, perhaps we get a recession and the Federal Reserve doesn't step in this time with QE, increased liquidity. And we get a huge sell-off, more than we have ever seen. We just don't know. Which means we need to be comfortable with our asset allocation. Be prepared for a 60% drop in stocks. That's not a prediction. That's been the worst case scenario in the past, the maximum drawdown. We're only at 16% global stock sell-off. Now, more speculative areas, the NASDAQ 100 is down close to 30%. Yet, I own some value ETFs that are only down 5 It depends. Value has done significantly better than growth stocks during this cycle as interest rates have increased. So we'll see. Now is not the time to panic. Now is the time to make sure our long-term asset allocation is appropriate so our lifestyle will not be compromised if we see those level of losses. Just because the Federal Reserve is initiating quantitative tightening doesn't mean stocks and other asset classes have to fall, nor does the economy have to enter into recession. And different central banks around the world are approaching this differently. Some are raising rates, some are not. Some have started quantitative tightening, some have not. We'll see. Hopefully, you have found this helpful. Sometimes these numerical examples can can get somewhat complicated. But the takeaway is, unless the federal government is running a budget surplus, destroying wealth in combination with quantitative tightening, then that's a dire scenario, and that's not where we're at. The federal government continues to run a budget deficit, which is increasing overall net worth in the economy, while quantitative tightening is taking place, reducing the amount of liquidity and cash that is impacting asset prices and valuations. But it isn't necessarily dire because it is measured over time, and the Federal Reserve can stop doing it if they're seeing too many negative consequences, just like they did in September 2019 when it stopped because repo rates, repurchase agreement rates, shot up significantly, and the Federal Reserve had to provide more liquidity to banks to get things back in order. We discussed that whole scenario. I don't have the episode number in front of me, but it was an episode that came out in September 2019, and I'll make sure I put those in the show notes so you can check out that episode. That then is episode 388, Will Quantitative Tightening Lead to Further Asset Price Drops? We don't know. 
Let's stay tuned. In this episode, we've touched on inflation, what causes it. But if you would like to learn more about inflation and how to beat inflation, please check out our free email course on how to beat inflation. You can sign up for that course at moneyfortherestofus.com slash inflation. That's moneyfortherestofus.com slash inflation. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.